notwithstanding late arrivals, I think we can start in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Seat of wisdom, pray for us. Blessed John Don Scotus, pray for us. Our last two conferences are a part of that last series conferences, in which from the point, point of uh, the advantage point of the solemn definition of the Immaculate Conception, we can look back on certain specific discussions of Mariological kind in SCOTUS have implications, far-reaching implications for not only Mariology, but for theology as a whole, especially in our, uh, in our days. We've already examined the presentation of the Debitum Peccati, uh, its implications for a correct understanding of the question grace and nature, avoiding the two opposite extremes. One naturalism, or used to be called Pelagianism, and the other extreme being Calvinism or Jansenism, the pessimistic view, precisely because our Haiti is all grace, all pure, all whole, holy, holy, we can have a fundamentally, radically, unconditionally <laughs> happy, optimistic uh, view. Why? Because our hope is secure in, in, in her. Not only because we see the model, but also because now we know that thereby she is the efficacious mediatrix of all graces, whatever the circumstances, even those of the concentration camp. The second paper, which Father Ferro Aurelano takes up a very interesting subject, has seldom been discussed, in, even by scholars, and that is the teaching of Scotus on the virginal marriage of uh, St. Joseph and Our Lady and uh, insinuates very clear principles that are, the, in fact, the foundation of the Josephology, study of St. Joseph, recognition of the particular place he has as the man closest to Jesus. And in a particular way, therefore, for a crucial problem of the present day, there's so much emphasis on the feminist aspect, what then is a correct view of male or masculine spirituality there are serious moral problems that result, uh, not only moral, but psychological problems that result from an inadequate or false approach uh, to the spirituality characteristic of the father and the husband. And the answer is to be found, or the point of departure here. The further point that Father Farewell wants, it's not merely a question that Scotus considers uh, the problems of a virginal marriage, but that uh, considers uh, the principles which are, in fact, without recognizing Scotus, but are in fact present in the apostolic exhortation, which is the Magna Carta, according to some, of uh, Josephology as a part of, a part of theology, uh, of John Paul II, Radium Torus Custos. Now, obviously, the whole paper cannot be read in time, but it's well worth uh, meditating the actual texts cited from the teaching of the late, late Pope, uh, and the principles and the implications of the principles found in Scotus. Now, it is a fact that will recognize that the, the Scotists, particularly those of the Counter-Reformation period, period, and we think of Angelo Vulpes, Cardinal Lawrence, Brancante de Loria, were great supporters of precisely this approach to St. Joseph. Forty years ago, 45 years ago, in Montreal, the meeting of the 
Society for the Study of St. Joseph at the Oratory, Brother, uh, Blessed Brother Andre in Montreal. I assisted in presenting two papers, papers precisely on these scotus, but there was no <laughs> notice given to the fact that all of these Franciscan support promoters of St. Joseph in the 17th and 18th century were simply working out the implications of Blessed John Scotus. So, we let Father Ioannis begin the reading of Father Vera Orlano's paper, which is, a, a, you might say, a very original contribution to Scotistic studies. Okay. Uh, before we begin, as Father Peter mentioned, um, this, the, we're not going to be able to read the entire paper, because uh, as it stands, it's made up of close to 25 pages, single-spaced, um, and that doesn't include the footnotes, which have not yet been translated and inserted into the text. And we're going to have to cut this down to something closer to 10 pages. So it's sort of like uh, the tip of the iceberg. There's far more that you will not see than the part uh, that you will see. Um, so we encourage you all to, to read this very fascinating paper when it's published in the, in the acts of the symposium later on. <coughs> The Virginal Marriage of Mary and Joseph, according to Blessed John Duns Scotus. The conference begins with a quotation from Pope John Paul II's Apostolic Exhortation, Redemptoris Custos, of 15th August, 1989. Quote, for the Church, it is important both to profess the virginal conception of Jesus and to defend the marriage of Mary with Joseph. End quote. Introduction. In this symposium organized by the Franciscans of the Immaculate, we commemorate the seventh centenary of the Dies Natalis, or birthday in heaven, of Blessed John Duns Scotus, 1265 to 1308. We celebrate this anniversary but a few miles from the town of Duns, where by divine disposition, his earthly birth in Scotland, near the frontier with England, occurred. Thus he was born on the island of Great Britain, Mary's dowry, which has given so many saints to the church and cries out that the moment of return of so many of her children to the Church of Rome may come quickly. Blessed John was the defender of the Immaculate, of the primacy of the Pope, and of the holy sacrifice of the Mass, three key signs of Catholic identity, for the defense of which he was calumniated and insulted by the reformers to the point of caricaturing his very name, Dunce and Duncecap were used as synonyms for jackass and cap of a jackass. And it is my conviction that the intercession of Blessed John will be decisive in shortening the time of trial and scandal arising out of the division among Christians, a division which our Lord has permitted to continue to our days. Until the middle of the last century, modernity, in the same degree that as it has ignored scholasticism, has despised it and particularly after Luther considered scholasticism to be the offspring of a diabolical prostitute. With the close of that parenthesis, the scholars have begun to rediscover the fecundity and actuality of the thought of Blessed John. Recent popes have recommended him as, quote, a sure point of reference, end quote. Before his beatification, Blessed John XXIII spoke of Scotus as, quote, of great value for the study and deepening of the theological problematic which is at the moment impoverished and somewhat disoriented. Without doubt, we need to ponder clear-cut ideas of the essentials to refresh basic traditions and ideas. For this, the theological orientation of John Duns Scotus 
freed from the incrustations of the past, can serve as a call to order and a secure point of reference, end quote. His profound and original philosophical and theological synthesis was, just as he reached full intellectual maturity, unfortunately interrupted and left incomplete by his premature death in Cologne on 8th November 1308. His intense teaching career in Cambridge, Oxford, and Paris had indeed already matured his thought into a doctrine well articulated and based on clear and consistent principles. Yet, because his premature death left the formulation of that doctrine incomplete, one cannot pretend to offer a complete theological and philosophical synthesis of his thought without risking, as J.A. Marino so accurately writes, a betrayal of the master's doctrine and offering an unfaithful digest of his work. At times, however, the attentive student can signal unsuspected avenues of research and open paths untrod, far more enlightening than those of a conventional, neatly structured, and hence closed system. The doctrinal value of an author rests not only on what he affirms expressly, but even more on what he insinuates and suggests in the light of the principles which inspire and on which consistently turn a thought in the course of articulation, ever in search of new insight. So it happens, especially in the case of those masters of theological reflection, like Thomas Aquinas, my master, or John Duns Scotus, who have received from God a gift of wisdom in support of the saving mission of the church. The latter I have discovered only lately, studying him directly and not through the eyes of his habitual critics. Like all the gifts of God, such gifts must be received with thanks, seeking to discover in them complementary dimensions enriching the service of truth in charity rather than as trapping for the banners of academic parties. In our days, there has been an ever-increasing international interest in the philosophical thought of Scotus, rightly known as the subtle doctor, especially for his precise commentaries on Aristotle, on the ontology of the concrete, and his very original vision of metaphysics as the hinge between philosophy and theology, on his positive concept of matter, on the value he assigns to the human body with his theory of corporeity as form, on his conception of the person as ultimate solitude and transcendental relation. These generic observations are particularly pertinent to the theme which I am about to expound, the virginal marriage of Mary and Joseph, according to Blessed John Don Scotus. My good friend, Father Alessandro Maria Apollonio, no doubt proposed that I should treat this theme because he is aware of my great love for the Holy Patriarch, revealed in my many published studies on the theology of St. Joseph. In entering upon this study, it is helpful to take note more fully of the state of the question as I found it on beginning my research. Interestingly, the intense devotional fervor surrounding the Holy Patriarch prior to the magisterium of the last 200 years and the development of Josephology still later paralleling exactly the history of Mariology, is posterior to the times of Scotus. Yet, seen in the broader historical development maturing in the apostolic exhortation Redemptoris Custos of John Paul II, the work of the subtle doctor reveals explicit reflections on our theme. These contain suggestions valuable for their theological significance. For in the light of Scotus's theological position on the universal primacy of Christ and on his personalistic relational metaphysics, particularly relevant to our times, they enjoy tremendous importance for entering ever more deeply into this mystery at that moment when the hour of St. Joseph, as it is called, seemingly has arrived. I'm convinced that Providence has reserved the full manifestation of the mystery of St. Joseph, 
the terror of demons, as he has invoked in so many litanies dedicated to him, to our so chaotic times. Jean Guiton, a well-known Christian philosopher and friend of Paul VI, often said, quote, I have the impression that the hour of St. Joseph is still to arrive. He has not yet emerged from the shadows. His hour is just beginning. You will see that the future still contains many beautiful surprises for us concerning him, end quote. It is a given, comments Vittorio Messori, that whoever, quote, finds cheer in loving Mary will also love just as much her very special spouse. To be hidden and only arise slowly from the shadows appears part of the extraordinary role ascribed to Joseph in the history of salvation, end quote. It is hardly strange, then, that the Marian doctor par excellence, the cantor of the word incarnate and of the primacy of Christ, and defender and champion of the Immaculate Conception of Mary, thus Pope John Paul II, on a visit, his visit to Cologne, invoked Blessed Scotus before his tomb, can throw light on this truly capital theme, the virginal marriage of the spouses of Nazareth. Above all, is this true when we take into consideration the continuity between Scotus's contribution and the subsequent contributions of the Franciscan school inspired by him, from St. Bernardine of Siena and St. Lawrence of Brindisi to St. Maximilian Maria Kolbe. We are treating here of nothing less than the fundamental principle of present-day Josephology, inseparable from Mariology. And with this, it is an inseparable part of theology, essential and not a merely devotional ornament, even if so many the theologians, including Catholic Mariologists, have not realized this, nor do they seem ready to admit it. This seems to parallel what has occurred with Marian co-redemption, proxime indefinibilis, in spite of the increasing requests from a significant part of the people of God, and in spite of the recent votum of the cardinals and bishops prepared during the intense days of study at the Fatima Symposium of 2005, that the Holy Father define the fifth Marian dogma. In the light of the Scotistic thesis on the primacy of Christ, to take one example, one discovers, as this study will show, how the virginal marriage of Mary and Joseph was predestined ante mundi constitutionem, before the constitution of the world, as an essential part of the one decree of the incarnation of the word in the womb of the Immaculate, ante previsa merita, before any consideration of merit. Such is the saving plan, the mystery hidden before the ages in God, to be accomplished at a high point in the history of salvation. That high point is the fullness of time when God sent his son into the most pure bosom of Holy Mary, ever virgin, espoused to a man of the house of David in fulfillment of the prophecy of Nathan. Thus God acted that through the obedience of the spouses of Nazareth, the son might be freely welcomed into the history, into history on behalf of all mankind in order to save it. This welcome took place in the virginal womb of Mary, the daughter of Zion, and in the house of Joseph, in the family home established by the marriage of two spouses, a sanctuary of love and cradle of life. This is the theological foundation of the Holy Patriarch's greatness as the virginal and messianic father of the only begotten of the father, the shadow and transparent icon of him who wished to make Joseph a unique partaker of his fatherhood in order to prepare the human nature of Christ for the Holocaust of Calvary. In this way, he made Joseph the father and lord of the church, which gushed forth from Christ's open side and was born of the sword of sorrow of the woman. I'll begin my exposition in part one with a summary of the explicit teaching of Blessed John on the virginal marriage of Mary and Joseph, found in his university commentaries on the sentences of Peter Lombard. 
in accord with the medieval system of university-level theological teaching. These lectures were the speculative complement to or theological reflection on his commentaries on scripture, the sacred page. The method followed was that of the disputation, the sic et non, which is characteristic of medieval scholasticism, so foreign to our current tastes, but possesses nonetheless an undeniable intellectual rigor and is at the antipodes of the current essay type dilettantism. In the course of the exposition, I will underscore those points which suggest the doctrinal development leading to our current Josephology, which Scotus himself did not formulate since the hour of Joseph had not yet arrived, yet which follow co-naturally from the logic inherent in his theological and philosophical principles. In the second part, I will dedicate an excursus to a number of characteristics of Scotus's thought in the light of which the subsequent explicit development of the implications latent in his exposition of the virginal marriage of Mary and Joseph in the form of a Mariology and much later of a Josephology will appear co-natural and inseparable from one another. That elaboration will discover in Joseph an essential dimension of the saving design of God at its high point, the cornerstone of both testaments, the historic realization of the incarnation of the word in the womb of Mary espoused to Joseph, son of David, who took her with the child into his home. Finally, in parts three and four, I will explain these developments along the lines followed by the magisterium in our times, in particular in those documents where this teaching finds its most mature formulation, the encyclical Redemptoris Mater and the apostolic exhortation Redemptoris Custos, both of John Paul II. My intention is to illustrate the continuity between the present magisterium and the thought of a subtle doctor. In the third part, I show how the absolute predestination, ante previsa peccata, of the human nature of the word incarnate in the womb of a virgin espoused to Joseph implies the inclusion in a single decree of the family which must welcome the incarnate word into history. This proposition is found seminally in the Scotistic thesis concerning the primacy of Christ, understood in its full inclusive sense. This last is understood in the light of biblical parallelism and of the spiritual typological sense cultivated by the fathers since the time of St. Irenaeus. Other theologians of the Franciscan school, above all St. Maximilian Kolbe, have already explained this in reference to the Immaculate, the new Eve. It remains only to recognize, with the coming of his hour, the inclusion of St. Joseph as head of the family of Nazareth, the Trinity on earth, the transparent icon of the Trinity of heaven, and the path of saving return to heaven. In the fourth and final part, I conclude my presentation by rendering explicit the soteriological importance of the virginal marriage of the spouses of Nazareth, which the text of Redemptoris Custos, used as subtitle of this conference, as it were, recapitulates. In effect, the fatherhood of Joseph, which is virginal and messianic in relation to Jesus, is based on his virginal marriage with Mary. In turn, it is the foundation of his fatherhood in relation to the church, whose origins are to be found in the home at Nazareth, the house of Joseph. That family was the sacramentum absconditum a seculis in Deo, the sacrament or mystery hidden from the ages in God, Ephesians 3, verse 9. And the mysterium quod absconditum fuit a seculis et generationibus, the mystery which was hidden from the ages and generations, Colossians 1, verse 26. The beginning of the nascent church culminating in the eschatological Jerusalem. My exposition ends with some concluding reflections which summarize the fruits of my research and which I must confess have given me so much joy. 
Part 1, Explicit Teaching of Scotus in his University Lectures on the Virginal Marriage of Mary and Joseph, suggest for further development in the light of the dynamism of Scotus's thoughts. In Volume 4 of the Opus Auxanienses, or Ordinatio, the subtle doctor amply treats the virginal marriage of Mary and Joseph. He defends it, meeting the objections of those few who deny that this marriage was in any true sense a marriage, a position quite contrary both to the tradition of the fathers and doctors, in particular St. Augustine, who wrote so much and so well on the Holy Patriarch, and to the correct exegesis of Scripture. They considered either that such a marriage is incompatible with a vow of virginity, we will call this objection A, or that as a marriage between persons of diverse tribes, in this case Judah and Levi, it was forbidden by a virtue of by virtue of an impediment, objection B. In his argumentation, Scotus follows the traditional line which insists on the fittingness of inserting the mystery of the word incarnate and a virgin mother into the human family in orderly fashion. But he also opens a path to a further development of its transcendent soteriological significance as a key factor in the history of salvation. Okay, we're going to skip over the response to objection A for the sake of time. Effectively, uh, Scotus affirms, uh, contrary to Peter Lombard and certain other authors, that uh, Our Lady had indeed made an absolute vow of virginity and that that was not in any way uh, contrary to the, the real uh, and valid character of her marriage with St. Joseph. We'll skip over to objection B, which is found at the bottom of page 8. Beneath the page. Page eight, the bottom of page eight. Bottom of the page. Last paragraph. Scotus also replies to the other objection, a legal one, which would impede marriage, not for intrinsic reasons touching validity, today we would say derriment impediments, but rather on the basis of merely juridical prohibitions. Under the old law, some medievals objected there existed a prohibition of marriage between persons of different tribes. In support of this, a well-known text of Numbers was cited. But our doctor replied, replied that said prohibition was limited to the daughters of Safad in view of questions bearing an inheritance occasioned by circumstances of a passing character. On the other hand, according to an opinion common in the patristic tradition, Mary, through her mother, not only belonged to the tribe of Levi, but also to the tribe of Judah. Notwithstanding advances in biblical research, the problems associated with the double genealogy of Matthew and Luke have not been resolved by present-day exegesis. The thesis, however, concerning the messianic fatherhood of Joseph, which the apostolic exhortation Redemptoris Custos has made its own, seems to be winning wide acceptance. This thesis sees that paternity as constituted by Joseph's agreement in obedience of faith to God's command delivered by the angel to confer on Jesus during the rite of circumcision the name whereby all men will be saved from sin. That agreement occurred when he took Mary into his house during the second part of the wedding in order, to take, in order, together with his wife Mary, to educate Jesus and to shape his human nature, preparing it for the Holocaust of Calvary in the sanctuary of love and cradle of life, which is the family founded on the virginal marriage of both spouses. The argumentation of the theologian of the absolute primacy of Christ, Scotus, concerning the historical realization of what had been divinely predestined concerning the incarnation ante previsa peccata, uh, before any provision of sin, implies that it 
include as an essential condition in the very same decree the virgin, virginal marriage of Mary the Immaculate, the full of grace, with Joseph, who was called to be virginal and messianic father of Jesus, head of the church to be born of the open side of the new Adam, with the cooperation of his mother, the new Eve, and of his virginal father. Although Blessed John does not say this explicitly anywhere in his writings, the scotistic logic, potuit and decuit ergo fecit, he could do it, he ought to have done it, and therefore he did do it, the logic which with which he defended the Immaculate Conception, leads us to think that Joseph should have received subordinately to Mary as a spiritual son of his wife, just as she is the spiritual daughter of her son, a fullness of grace by reason of his marriage with the Immaculate. This fullness might appropriately be called paternal. Now we'll jump to the bottom of the same page, part two. Excursus, evaluation of the active cooperation of creatures with the creator of human freedom, of the individual and of the body in terms of the relational personalism of Scotus. In the prologue to the Ordinatio, Scotus indicates how creator and creature collaborate in the supernatural order. God, the perfect agent, could supply directly and instantaneously for the operative limitations of creatures. Quote, even so, it is more perfect to share with the creature what is characteristic of divine activity so that the creature might attain the perfection of the creator than not to share this, end quote. This is a consequence of a conception of God as generous love, which is neither jealous nor envious in sharing his goodness with creatures. Thus creatures, in accord with their own capacities, although strengthened by the help of God, actively cooperate with him in the development of creation at all levels, and in particular in the saving work of God, whose culmination is the incarnation of the word. This is the root of Scotus's concern to attribute to the human nature of Christ the full dynamism of activities connatural to the whole of humanity, lest, in assuming it, the word should diminish it, and by assuming it interfere with the natural spontaneity of its activities. Particularly in whatever has reference to the human freedom of Jesus, Scotus's zeal in formulating a theological explanation, least compromising to that freedom, when treating Christological questions the most difficult to resolve, is quite noticeable. These are the questions dealing with impeccability, Christ's obedient love for the divine command to submit himself freely to the passion and death on the cross, etc. He is equally concerned to underscore the fully active role of Mary in the exercise of her motherhood in relation to Jesus. The virginity of the mother of the Lord is not incompatible with a true and integral human motherhood. Although the action of the Holy Spirit supplies in the divine maternity for the male action in a natural maternity, that action of the Spirit in no wise affects the fact that Mary collaborates in the formation of the body of Jesus, exactly as every mother contributes to the formation of her child. In the time of Scotus, the prevailing opinion held that the father is the only active principle and the mother is merely passive merely supplying the matter required. Scotus significantly rejects this opinion and explains in detail how the action of every mother is a principal cause in the formation of her child's organism. For this reason, quote, if it is characteristic of every mother to act as a principal cause and marry as a true mother, then she exercised all the activity corresponding to a mother's role, end quote, from the Ordinatio, part three. Uh, this subject will be taken up in greater detail in the next conference. And so we'll jump ahead this time to page 12. Page 12, one, two. 
have to say, in choosing the sections to cut out of here, it felt sort of like uh, dismembering limbs from one's body because uh, there's, there are very beautiful passages in here that were missing, so you're all going to have to, to read it at some point later. Part three, the absolute predestination of the incarnation of the only begotten of the Father implies the marriage of Mary and Joseph, in whose family home he was received and educated. In this section, we will show in three successive steps how, parting from the thesis formulated by Scotus on the primacy of Christ, to go about making explicit the inseparability of the three of the family of Nazareth, the Trinity on earth in the plan of divine predestination as a transparent icon of the Trinity of heaven and only path of saving return to heaven. If, as our theologian, Blessed John Don Scotus, affirms, love is the ontological structure of the divine nature, God not only loves himself, quote, but seeks to be loved by another outside himself, end quote. This lover, fully adequate, can only be Christ, who, being perfect man, ontologically subsists in the divine person of the word. For this reason, God, quote, foresees the union of that nature which must love in the highest degree, even if no one should have sinned, end quote. In Christ, God encounters his fully adequate and perfect lover, a supreme glorifier, one who brings to fulfillment the goal of creation. Christ not only was foreseen with all the elect before the creation of the world, but among all these beings, he was the first to be loved and chosen. He who seeks a perfect order must will that which is closest to the end. Now, quote, if among the predestined for whom God has willed glory, God desires order, he must in the first place will for glory him who is closest to the end. He must then will glory for the soul of Christ prior to willing this for any other soul, end quote. Scotus sees and contemplates Christ as a privileged being, not conditionally, but absolutely willed, not occasioned by sin, but by the maximum glory of God. Christ is not the last among creatures, but the first. He is the summit of creation because he is the head of all created beings. Christ is the fruit and product of the total liberality of the Father. And the incarnation of the word, quote, is to be ascribed solely to the mercy and goodness of God, end quote. It is totally unthinkable and incomprehensible that God's project for the world should fail because of the sin of man. For infinite being has unlimited resources for realizing the goal of creation. If God wills that a man really guarantee God's total glorification, he must make him partaker of what he himself is, predestining him from all eternity and without conditioning his being on human adventures. According to Scotus, Jesus Christ is this privileged man and the only one capable of fully realizing the divine will. This presupposes three things. First, the predestination of the man Christ to glory and union with the word are necessarily included in the same eternal project which God freely decides upon and out of love the actual order of the entire divine economy. Second, the decision about the incarnation and the predestination of the man Jesus to the hypostatic union with the word are totally absolute and unconditioned as regards the fact and precedes any other determination ad extra, that is, of things outside of God in the divine mind. Third, the predestination of Christ, the man was willed for the same end proposed by God in any of his actions ad extra, that is, his glorification. The material universe in its perceptible, graduated scale of beings finds its highest expression in man, who in turn carries in himself an impulse to meet and fulfill himself 
in the authentically perfect man who is the Christ. Synthesis of the divine and human bridge between God and man. The total raison d'etre of the unity of man, of free man, and consequently of all nature is based on the fact that man is the goal of all nature consummated in Christ, given that Christ's soul and body possesses an excellence surpassing all other souls and all other bodies. This is the specific end of this nature, that is, the blessed man. This metaphysic of love sustains an ontology of community participation and is the basis of an open and relational anthropology, which, with inevitable linked repercussions on society, on nature, and on all beings integrating it. There were other theologians of the Franciscan school who explained the role of Mary, the Immaculate, inseparable from her son in this insuperable summit of the glorification of God, which is the soul of Christ, in particular, St. Maximilian Kolbe. He argues that the predestination by God, uno eodemque decreto, in the same decree, of the incarnation of the word in the womb of the Immaculate, has as its end the recapitulation of all in Christ as king and head of the created universe, center and end of creation. That decree, however, could not have followed on the provision of sin, but could only have been independent of it, because God, who is love, created the world in view of love, opening on vistas in which rational beings would be capable of responding freely to that love, perfecting and making themselves similar to him with love. Omnia vestra sunt, vos autem Christi, Christus autem Dei. All things are yours, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. From 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 23. Now then, Mary surpasses in perfection all the love which simple creatures can give to God. She gives to God as response the supreme and insuperable summit itself of this love, an act postulating reciprocity, and consequently all creatures have been willed and loved by God in relation to Mary. The Holy Spirit is all the love of the Trinity, and in Mary, his spouse and transparent icon, all the love which creation can give to God in return is summarized. Mary responds fully to uncreated love. Thus, in this union of uncreated love with created love, effected in the heart of the Immaculate, one reaches the summit of love which God intends as supreme end, inseparable from the manifestation of his glory, and which cannot be conditioned by sin. For this reason, all creatures have been willed and loved by God in relation to the Immaculate. In subordination to her, to her son, she is the summit, the center and end of all creation. This intuition cuts across all of Franciscan theology, particular in St. Maximilian Kolbe, for him the so-called law of action and reaction. He sings to the Immaculate, quote, for you, God created, for you, God created the world. For you, God called me also into existence, end quote. St. Maximilian, like St. Bernardine of Siena and St. Lawrence of Brindisi before him, has drawn out all the consequences of the absolute primacy of Jesus and Mary before the provision of sin, which Blessed John Duns Scotus did not take into account. According to the subtle doctor, Mary was preserved only from the consequences of the debt to contract original sin, which touched her as a descendant of Adam. But if the grace of the angels and the original justice of our first parents, who were created with Mary as their principal model and end, derives from the fullness of grace bestowed on Mary in view of the foreseen merits of her son in the sacrifice of the cross, he must have preserved her not only from sin, but from the very law concerning the debt to contract it, a law stemming from the privation of the state of original justice. Adam was physical head, but not spiritual head of Mary. The grace of Adam derived from the full of grace, Mary. 
The full explanation of the central part played by St. Joseph, however, was reserved to our times. In virtue of his virginal marriage, ordained by God, he was always inseparably associated to Jesus and Mary in the divine plan of salvation, as is clear in the most mature expression of the magisterium on the Holy Patriarch, the apostolic exhortation, Redemptoris Gustos, of John Paul II. This inseparability of the three in their being and in the work of salvation, willed by God, can and must be described with a biblical hermeneutic setting in relief or rendering explicit that sense which the well-known exegete and Mariologist, Father Artona, calls full inclusive, implicit in numerous biblical passages, historical, prophetic, and sapiential. This became particularly apparent when the fathers began to use this in respect to Mary, the new Eve, in their exegesis of Pauline texts dealing with the new Adam, read from the perspective of the, of the proto-gospel, the queen of prophecies recapitulating the whole of world history in a single verse, and of Galatians 4.4. 4. In the light of biblical parallel, parallelism of the unity of scripture and of its typical spiritual sense, typical in the sense of typological. This exegesis of patristic origin based on biblical parallelism and the analogy of faith permits the discovery via, via the full inclusive sense of how many biblical texts which may be read in a Marian key can be read by way of analogy of participation in a Josephine key as well. A number of typologies invite us to proceed thus, as for instance that of Joseph the Patriarch in Egypt, which tradition ascribes to Saint Joseph by reason of his great power with Pharaoh. Quote, thou shalt be over my whole house, only in the kingly, th kingly throne will I be over thee, end quote, Genesis 41, 40. In order to dispense an abundance of blessings, so pointing to the powerful patron of Saint Joseph in the church, that she never lack the bread of the word and the bread of life go to Joseph and do whatever he tells you. So since Pius IX has the magisterium done, uh, when Pius IX named St. Joseph the patron of the church in the document Inclitum Patriarcarum, uh, published on 8th of December, 1870. The reference here to the intercession of Mary at Cain, using the same words, is obvious. So what he's summarizing here is the uh, is the conviction that using biblical figures in the Old Testament that clearly refer to St. Joseph uh, and, and in light of St. Joseph's unique relationship with our Blessed Lady, uh, we can justify the, the, uh, a Josephine reading of many of the passages and privileges that refer to Our Lady. Uh, and some authors saying that St. Joseph even has a specific role in distributing, in distributing grace. That which has been written in reference to Mary, we can also affirm of Joseph. The so-called silence of scripture ceases to be such, so F. Canals authoritatively affirms, for those who study biblical texts in reference to the Holy Patriarch from the perspective of the history of salvation in accord with the unity of scripture and analogy of faith. In this reading of biblical revelation, one rooted in the ancient patristic tradition, the family of Nazareth appears as the cornerstone of the saving decree of God in both testaments. This is because it reveals in itself the mystery of the triune God and allows us to know his saving will whose summit is reached at the arrival of the fullness of time in the redemptive incarnation of the word welcomed into the womb of Mary and into the house of Joseph.
continue on page 16, part 4. Consequences of the virginal marriage of Mary and Joseph implicit in the thought of the subtle doctor. Joseph, virginal and messianic father of Christ and father and lord of the mystical body, the church of the word become incarnate in the virginal womb of Mary, welcomed into the house of Joseph. Father Enrique Llamas has observed that, quote, the marriage of Joseph and Mary, the fundamental principle of Josephology, has not awakened great interest among theologians, ancient or modern. It has been considered rather as a taboo theme out of fear of obscuring the limpid virginity of the mother of God's son, or out of fear of raising questions which render difficult our understanding of or our faith in the divine virginal maternity. Since the patristic age, particularly after St. Jerome, such cautions have existed, end quote. Hence, it is understandable that Scotus would not have treated this delicate theme, theme expressis verbis, in explicit words. Father Llamas continues, quote, St. Augustine resolved the question with an analogical formulation, affirming the reality of the marriage in itself by virtue of the consent of the spouses, their fidelity and virginal fruit, namely the son born not of the marriage, but within it, end quote. Jesus is the virginal father of Jesus, more a father, the more chaste his fatherhood in virtue of his faith and charity. Scotus, like St. Thomas, accepts this solution of St. Augustine, which across the centuries became a topic treated somewhat aseptically in its intellectual aspects, because the writers on this theme were preoccupied about avoiding any involvement with problems of sexuality and about maintaining the delicate virginal character of that marriage. For this reason, the topic underwent little progress in its doctrinal formulation and development. Francisco Suarez himself, founder of Mariology, some would say, who wrote so much and so profoundly about St. Joseph, in particular of his belonging to the order of the redemptive hypostatic union in his being and in his work, a person exalted above all the saints, including the apostles, hardly treats of this topic. During the 17th and 18th centuries, much studied by Father Llamas, we meet with very few treatises or parts of treatises on the marriage of Mary and Joseph. A few authors of general books or of histories and lives of the Virgin treat and explain particular questions relative to this marriage. These discussions, however, are reduced to a limited number of questions and do not provide any vision of marriage properly theological because the authors are preoccupied with themes of secondary importance. This is not to say they cease to be interesting for this reason. Mariologists and theologians today, as Father Llamas so rightly affirms, have in general given little place to St. Joseph in the structure of soteriology, that is, the study of salvation, and even less in that of Mariology. Very few authors write in harmony with the capital affirmations of the apostolic exhortation Redemptoris Custos of John Paul II, and offer theological reflections on the marriage of the spouses of Nazareth, in particular suggesting principles and lines of orientation for articulating in a coherent fashion the theology of St. Joseph, inspiring the origin and initial development of this ex extraordinary magisterial text. This text, the Magna Carta of Josephology, is in full harmony with the homogeneous development of the principles governing the anthropological thought of the subtle doctor. This is plain especially in the evaluation of the body and in the treatment of free personal response in the obedience of faith, the permanent principle and foundation of justification for the realization of the saving plan of God, as well as in the principle of relational transcendence of the person who finds his own personal good in the gift of self made possible by the riches of one's incommunicable personal intimacy. 
Here are some fundamental theses of Redemptoris Custos, on which turns the theology of St. Joseph, in plain harmony, as we have been seeing, with the principles and basic intuitions of Blessed John Don Scotus. There are three points. First, the fact of Mary's being the promised spouse of Joseph is contained in the very plan of God. This is indicated in the two evangelists cited in Redemptoris Custos number 18. If it is important for the church to confess the virginal conception of Jesus, it is no less important to defend the marriage of Mary with Joseph, because juridically the fatherhood of Joseph depends on this marriage. In other words, if they didn't have a valid marriage, then Joseph would not validly be father uh, to our Lord, even in a juridical sense. And thus, our Lord would not be son of David in the line. Uh, second point, analyzing the nature of marriage. Both St. Augustine and St. Thomas find this always in the indivisible spiritual union, in the union of two hearts, in the consent elements which in that marriage are manifested in exemplary fashion. In the culminating moment of the history of salvation, when God revealed his love for mankind via the gift of the word, it is precisely the marriage of Mary and Joseph which realizes in full freedom the spousal gift of self in express, accepting and expressing that love from Redemptoris Custos number seven. And third point, the son of Mary is also son of Joseph in virtue of the marriage bond, which makes them one. We'll go to the conclusion now. Page 24. Concluding Reflections. Scotus's exposition of the virginal marriage of Mary and Joseph in the light of his personalist and relational metaphysics and of his theology of the absolute primacy of Christ, ante previsa peccata, before any, before any consideration of sin, as the principal center, summit, and goal of all God's works ad extra via the plenary inclusive sense at the origin of the patristic typological exegesis of scripture leads to this conclusion. The consent of Mary to the incarnation of the word in her womb. In the fiat of Nazareth and the subsequent silent consent of Joseph, subordinated and dependent on that of his bride and mother in the spirit, to take the mother and her son into his house, an ascent constituting him virginal messianic father of Jesus and depository of the mystery hidden from the ages in God. These are the first two acts of Christian faith which inaugurate the new covenant consummated in the Paschal mystery. They are not merely first in the temporal sense, but the active and exemplary principle for the co-redemptive value of the life of faith of the spouses of Nazareth and all those acts of faith which from generation to generation would be the foundation of the supernatural life of the church built upon apostolic faith. Thus he's concluding here that a certain kind of co-redemptive role can be attributed to St. Joseph as well, analogous to that of our Blessed Lady. The church, which is the family of the children of God in Christ, the firstborn among many brethren, is the prolongation of the family of Nazareth, constituted by those first acts of faith which bring the whole world to salvation. The fiat of Mary, who is the dawn of the son of justice, and the silent fidelity of Joseph, without words, but putting into practice the command of God. St. Jose Maria Escriva writes, Thank you, Mother, with your word, fiat, you made us brothers of God and heirs of heaven. Without doubt, like thanks are due to St. Joseph. For this reason, he is the Father and Lord of the Church, which was born of the opened side of Christ, the Redeemer, 
with the cooperation, prosus, and singularis of the Immaculate Corredemptrix in her faith, hope, and ardent charity, and with the cooperation inseparable from hers, even if subordinated, of Joseph. That cooperation culminates in the sacrifice of Calvary, which is actively present in the Eucharist on which the Church lives. From the mysterious saving presence in the Eucharist of the three united hearts of Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, quote, three hearts and a single love, end quote, pours forth the living water of the Spirit, vivifying the Church until the eschatological consummation in the parousia of the Lord.